Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. It's Beth here. It's been a little while since I've been on uh, one of these podcasts, but I'm joined by the lovely Chris Sams. Chris, how are you today? I'm good, thanks, Beth. How are you? I'm very good, very good. All the better for being with you as well. Um, So, Chris, tell us who we've got on today and what we've got in store. Today you'll be uh, relieved to know that I won't be forcing you to do any naval history. Instead, we have Clive Pearson, who is a historian and a lecturer who specialises in the Second World War, especially Russia's role. Today, he's here to talk to us about his latest book, Prime Ministers in 100 Facts. Clive, welcome to the podcast. Okay, thank you. Um, So, from Walpole to May, we have had quite a mixed bag of personalities and backgrounds. When you were researching this book, what, what really caught your eye the most? Oh, <laughs> I think that actually <laughs> quite a big period. I'm, I think most historians are really familiar with the 19th century prime ministers such as Gladstone, Disraeli, and of course, uh, 20th century prime ministers. But, um, I, th- I think that the 18th century is a bit of a gray area, really. And it's quite, I, I found it quite fascinating. Um, <laughs> some of the prime ministers are really sort of, uh, some, some uh, quite ne'er-do worlds, really. Sort of, uh, they just enriched themselves, and um, half the time they weren't there. They were either ill or having apoplectic fits, etc. But um, I, I think what was fascinating for me was the whole setup of the time. That uh, it was rampant um, corruption with the um, uh, uh, corruption of of, of the um, pocket boroughs, for example. Um, uh, which uh, each of them um, uh, presented two MPs, and um, uh, basically uh, they didn't have an electorate. So, for example, there'd be as many or as few as five MPs. Uh, sorry, five uh, electorates. 
So, for example, an example of this was Old Sarum, um, near Salisbury, or another one was uh, Dunhelm in, uh, on the coast, which uh, had actually sunk into the sea. They still returned two MPs. There are about 140 of these. And um, so, uh, and, and those that were returned were the king's men, and they basically supported the king uh, and, his, and his appointments and whoever the king decided to appoint. It's an interesting fact as well that uh, no uh, government uh, was decided by an election in the 18th century. So um, basically the reason was because the king decided who the prime minister was going to be. So um, um, a, lot, a lot of the, a lot of, as I said, a lot of the prime ministers were not really up to very much. Um, just a few of them really outstanding. For example, Walpole, Pitt the Elder, Pitt the Younger, that sort of thing. But um, it was just interesting that, um, you know, you had to charm the king, cosy up to the king if you wanted to keep your position. Mm. And if you look at the um, first two Georges, George the First, George the Second, they in fact um, wouldn't have any uh, Whigs sorry, any Tories in their government, because the Tories were associated with the Jacobites. So for half of the century, <laughs> uh, it was only uh, Whig governments. And then George III came in and he only had Tories in. So uh, what they, you know, the choice of prime ministers was really um, not very fair at all. It just depended on the king and his likes and dislikes, basically. Mm. So, uh, so I thought that was that was quite interesting. I know it's not really relevant. It's probably a bit um, apocryphal. But when you talk about uh, rotten boroughs, I can't help but uh, think of uh, Blackadder three and yeah. the Dungeon <laughs> by-election with uh, the only voter, Mister E. Blackadder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the whole system was a stitch up for the aristocracy and the king, basically. Mm. And uh, interesting in that period as well. No uh, prime ministers talked about reform. Because um, no one was interested in it because it was self-perpetuating and suited everybody. The system was corrupt and they just wanted to keep the system going as it was. It wasn't until 1832 the whole system was reformed, really. So um, about 100 years nearly of rampant corruption. Mm. Oh, rampant, rampant corruption in politics. That sounds <laughs> <awfully> familiar. <laughs> When we think of prime ministers, as you mentioned earlier, you, you know, you said you, there are those names that everyone knows. So it says, well, name your prime minister. You might say obvious names like Churchill, Gladstone, Disraeli, hmm. Lloyd George. Ask, there are names that everyone knows, but arguably the ones who fade into the background, um, are just as interesting and maybe in some cases even more interesting. Um, and one of those that you do highlight in the book is the third Duke of Grafton. Who is he? Oh. <laughs> well, I, I, I said in my book that Grafton was no grafter. Um, I, I <laughs> he, was, he, he was typical of, of the period in a way, and that um, he he was basically interested in um, the, the pleasures of life, basically. So um, hunting, shooting, racing. Um, and he was the great-grandson of Charles II and Barbara Villiers. And, um, he, well, we know about Charles II and the fact that he liked lots of mistresses mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, liked to enjoy himself. And, uh, uh, Grafton was very much the same, really. Um, he had a string of mistresses and, uh, famously, 
uh, he used to parade his favourite mistress, which was Nancy Parsons, and who was such a beauty that she was painted by Joshua Reynolds. Um, and um, so, yeah, so, and I think he had something like 16 children as well, not with Nancy Parsons, but with a couple of wives. Uh, so basically enjoyed himself. But as prime minister, <laughs> um, he was uh, not really up to much. He, he, he didn't really want to be prime minister, but the king uh, insisted. And uh, he really didn't like, he found it irksome, the business of government. And um, famously, um, he would uh, cancel cabinet meetings because uh, race meetings were on or he had, he had friends at home, that sort of thing. So uh, not really up to much as prime minister, but not exceptional, I would say, for the 18th century. <laughs> Sounds fairly standard behaviour for the time period. <laughs> <laughs> Would it be stand- standard ha- behaviour for Boris as well, probably? Well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> There's a liberal in the corner. Uh, uh, another, another one that you had... Uh, that came up was William Cavendish Bentwick, who was the third Duke of Portland. Oh, yeah. he, got quite, he gets quite a strong historical verdict, but is it fair? Um, well, um, yeah, having looked at some others who were um, just as reprehensible, uh, you might say no. But um, the reference really was to his government um, uh, in the period... Um, 1807 to 9, when we had the Napoleonic Wars on, and um, he basically was not there most of the time. <laughs> and you think in the middle of a war, maybe we need a hands-on prime minister directing the war. He actually gave virtually no direction to his government, and <laughs> even um, two of his ministers actually uh, had a duel. And uh, he, he did nothing to sort these quarrels out. He was uh, totally useless. But also, I mean, in his defence, he was pretty ill, apparently, and uh, finally decided to throw in the towel when he had an apoplectic fit, which was, um, in those days, what we call now as um, a, a stroke, basically. But um, oh. So he, he was pretty useless. But there were other people in the 18th century who were also passengers in their government, like figureheads, who didn't really do very much. But I suppose in the middle of a war, perhaps you expect, you know, better behaviour, really, or, or, or stronger characters to give direction to the war. But um, there we go. Perhaps mm. <laughs> not much different to some of them. No, absolutely. They all seem to be of a, of a very similar ilk in that time period. <laughs> um, again, these some of these names are, you know, I had I hadn't heard of. Cavendish Bentwick and they're not names that are familiar there is is a name that is familiar as you know mostly due to his place I suppose and where he comes in the list of prime ministers and that's uh, Pitt the Younger um obviously a very interesting prime minister in all what can you tell us about him well (laughs) unique in the annals of history because Mm. uh, obviously the youngest prime minister uh, ever in history 24 which is uh, remarkably young. And, um, I don't know if I'd trust a 24-year-old in the country <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> and, and, well, people didn't at the time. They they, they thought it was hilarious. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, you've got uh, Blackadder thoughts again about um, <laughs> hit the embryo and all that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, but he, um, 
well, the reason for his appointment was his father, Pitt the Elder, had been a remarkable war leader. And I think mm. the king, George III, thought, well, you know, chip off the old block, we'll go, I'll, I'll give him a chance. And he was a remarkable orator. Um, and he um, had been taught by his father to do simultaneous translations of Greek and Latin from a young age. And uh, so he, he he was a remarkable uh, figure in Parliament, despite his young age. Mm. Um, and the other uh, point is that he was the second longest serving prime minister, nearly 19 years. So it's quite a long stint in office. And what was unusual about him as well is that um, unlike the others who were sort of enjoying the pleasures of life, shall we say, uh, he actually devoted himself entirely to the country and to the job, okay. basically. So, And this was particularly uh, the case because uh, he was very much involved in the Napoleonic Wars as well in the, mm-hmm. in the early days. And um, uh, But he, he was a bachelor and he had a strange sort of lifestyle. He, he would, you know, he, he was taught nothing of, you know, getting to bed about four o'clock in the morning. He was a, he was a night owl mm. and enjoyed lots of parties and um, would speak for hours at night in Parliament. Um, uh, but also he was a very big drinker. His um, father had brought in a, a doctor called um, uh, uh, Anthony Addington. And Anthony Addington had recommended that uh, the young lad was looking a bit frail and unhealthy. And he thought what he needed best was plenty of port wine every day. That would build him up. That was recommended in those days. And uh, he was getting through, according to William Hague in his book, uh, about a bottle and two thirds of port wine every day. So you can imagine, (laughs) you can imagine uh, that he was verging on being an alcoholic, basically. Oh, absolutely. And uh, and, uh, so um, it's not surprising then that he died a a relatively young age of 46. And his doctor at the time said he could have been 90 when they did the autopsy. He was uh, sort of very much a wreck, really, basically. But he worked himself into the ground and drank himself into the ground. But he, but, um, you wouldn't have said he was a great prime minister, however, because his achievements were very few. He wasn't a great war leader, despite the efforts that he put in. Um, and um, he promised to uh, abolish the slave trade and bring in various reforms, and he did none of them. So um, <laughs> although he's a very interesting character, you wouldn't put him up with the greats like Gladstone or even his father, Pitt the Elder, etc. So uh, an interesting character, mm. if nothing else, really. <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah, gosh, a, a bottle and two-thirds every yeah. day of port. Yes, yes, yeah. Gosh, well, I've, he used I've to, done a bottle know, in a single to... day and I know the ramifications <laughs> of what that means. <laughs> well, presumably he got hardened to it over the years. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> Um, talking of the slave trade um, and tragic end. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. 
Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Spencer Percival, who has the, um, the unfortunate moniker of to be the only serving prime minister to be murdered yes. in office. Um, so yeah, quite a tragic end. But he also had a link to the role with the slave trade as well, didn't he? Yes, well, he's, um, I had a, a strong evangelical Christian convictions and sort of a bit like Gladstone, if you want, really. They coloured his thoughts and his actions in government. So he's a pretty good prime minister, actually, uh, and probably would have gone, you know, like Lord Liverpool for 17 years or whatever it was. Um, uh, but as you say, tragically, his uh, life was cut short by John Bellingham. Um yeah, so when he was Chancellor in uh, 1807, yeah, he was uh, instrumental in pushing through uh, the abolition of the slave trade and um, and belonged to something called, I think it was the African Institute, which uh, and they were determined that they would stop uh, the ships going across from West Africa. So when he was Prime Minister... He was determined to stop all, uh, stop all ships, you know, investigate all ships that were moving across from West Africa and, um, going towards uh, the Caribbean and America. So, yeah, so he started that. And in fact, what we do forget is, I'll just put, the, put this in as a point that, uh, until America stopped the slave trade, um, uh, Royal Navy ships were patrolling off the coast of West Africa and saved hundreds of thousands of black people's lives. That's something we forget, actually, although we're reprehensible for having started the slave trade. We actually did quite a lot to to stop it afterwards. Mm. So um, I think it was an interesting point. Um, there is a theory that John Bellingham, who was the assassin, was put up to it by various slave traders who hated Percival, um, and that uh, he was, you know, supported and paid to do it. They knew he had a big grievance, and mm. he was just the man for these merchants who who really hated Percival. So it's just a theory. I'm not sure that it necessarily holds true, but uh, this this you know, there's lots of people who support this idea going mm. through the records. Yeah, I mean, it certainly isn't an outlandish theory is it that he could have been um supported by those who were advocates of the slave trade yeah, you know yeah, it yeah. is certainly a good a, a solid theory um mm-hmm. and then i suppose you move from spencer percival who in that period of time as we mentioned involved in very pro the napoleonic wars and and what have you in that period of time mm-hmm. you then mm-hmm. quite nicely in a way you eventually move on to um the duke of wellington Arthur Wellesley, of mm. course, becoming the Prime Minister. Now, there are a few th- bits and pieces that he is particularly known for as his time as a Prime Minister. And, and what kind of things is he known for? And what kind of Prime Minister was he? You know, is he just one of these? Is he, I almost want to liken him to, is it like the Donald Trump of his era where he was already famous and then gets the job in spite of his, his fame? Or is he actually a, is he a politician? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, probably not a very good politician, but of course we've still got that system where, you know, it's the king that decides who the prime minister is. Mm-hmm. And uh, if the king likes you and thinks you can do the job, um, then he'll appoint you. Um, he, he, as you might expect, was uh, a reactionary Tory, sat in the House of Lords, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ultras, ultra Tories who are against any kind of reform. You know, we've been talking about the corruption in the system, the rotten barrows, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the country was crying out for change. And of course, he is one of the leading ultras in the, in the House of Lords blocking, determined to block anything that might come through from the House of Commons. Mm. So, um, yeah, so when he was appointed, uh, the ultras and the king and uh, the broad mass of the Tories Thought that he was their man and he would, he would not bring in any reforms. He'd block anything. And that's why they wanted to appoint him. But surprisingly, he actually did implement change, which actually infuriated, uh, his, uh, Earth world buddies, you know, the ultra Tories. Mm-hmm. He actually, uh, brought in Catholic emancipation, which was a big no-no for many Tories. So he felt it was necessary because the situation uh, was getting out of control in Ireland. And he thought that was something that was necessary to be done. And also something else that helped Catholics was the Test and Corporations Act. So he passed these reforms, uh, much to everybody's surprise. But it's interesting. Um, of course, as prime minister, he found it very difficult because as a general, leading general, he's used to dishing out the orders, not, not having his uh, orders discussed. So he's quite surprised that he'd say, we're going to do this, that, and the other in cabinet. And the others would sit around and say, hmm, let's discuss this. I'm not sure we agree with this. So, um, that is very, uh, you know, a general's not used to having his orders uh, talked about like that. Mm. So he found that very frustrating uh, to begin with. I suppose he slowly got used to it. Um, but interestingly, later on, when he was out of office, and uh, we had the Great Reform Act going through. Um, he um, uh, was adamant against it, of course. And then when he thought the revolution was actually coming, he actually gave in and got fellow uh, lords, ultra lords, to actually abstain on the important vote and allow the Great Reform Act to go through. Mm. So when he felt it was necessary for the future of the country or the well-being of the country, he actually stepped back and brought in reform, surprisingly, you know, because obviously he wasn't a natural reformer or supporter of reform. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting character. Yeah. yeah. 
Interesting character, but would you say was he a good prime minister? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> he was only in for a couple of years. Not not one of the greats, I think we can say. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, very reactionary in his attitudes, as you might expect from a general, I suppose. I don't know. Mm. Perhaps I'm being biased. There, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, over the years, we've had some pretty pivotal moments in British history that have affected the world as well. Who would you, out of all the Prime Ministers you've looked at, who do you think had the most impact, either at home or abroad? Oh, well, there have been like two or three key ones. I mean, Earl Grey, apart from giving his name to a T, <laughs> what was important uh, for as, as Whig Prime Minister in the early 30s for, of course, the Great Reform Act, which swept away all that old corruption and brought in a modern, modern political system, modern politics that we, you know, it was the start of what we have today, really. So really important. And also, um, he abolished slavery throughout the British Empire, 1833. So two great things there were really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, a, a key player. Um, I also like, I pretty much like Lloyd George, actually, in the 20th century. Um, not only did he kickstart the welfare state, national insurance for unemployment and sickness, that sort of thing, but also he was the man that won the war, second, the first world war. Uh, and he, he brought about a remarkable change in the uh, munitions industry. Um, and uh, through, through just by bringing in businessmen and changing the practice and the way everything was organized. Um, so, so he was pivotal really. And of course, you know, he started the, as I say, started the, what the welfare state, um, national insurance, et cetera. And of course that helped Atley when he came in after, uh, World War II because he was able to build on that. And so, you know, from that recourse, we got the, Cradle to the Grave, the NHS, and and the welfare state. So, yes, he was a a great player, really. Yeah. So there's two people there, and you, of course you can't miss out Churchill. I mean, if you talk about war as well, then of course Churchill was axiomatic, really, in in uh, World War Two. And also, if you forget about Churchill, that he worked alongside Lloyd George in bringing in um, the the welfare reforms. National insurance. So he was a key player as a liberal prior to World War One. So, you know, he, he wasn't just a warmonger. He had other things, other, you know, uh, feathers in his cap, shall we say, although he, he definitely became a Tory later on, a diehard Tory, not, you know, pretty much against a lot of reforms. Mm. But, um, yeah, a great war leader. You couldn't leave him out as, a, you know, a great character, great player in, uh, in the 20th century. Yeah. Wasn't he um, famous for saying, you're, sorry? If you're, wasn't Churchill famous for saying, uh, that when you're young, if, you, if you're not a liberal, you have no heart. And when you get older, if you're not a Tory, you have no brain. <laughs> yes. He did say that. Yeah. He did say you shouldn't be afraid to switch horses if necessary. Of course, he could start off as a Tory, then liberal, then back to Tory. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's one, there's one that we haven't mentioned and I think we all 
would most people would know of him mainly because of his many many times in office as prime minister um of course william Hewitt gladstone uh four four times as as prime minister um the grand old man gone however you want to refer to him and there is it's undoubtedly that you know it's one of the very few things that i can remember from my a-level british history class about this period of time the late victorian period to through to into the Edwardians and so on, that he was a good prime minister. Um, there is many things that he did that has proved undoubtedly that he was, but he was a very peculiar character as well, wasn't he? He was a bit of a strange fellow. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. For, just for our listeners, what, what kind of things did, did he get up to? You know, the good political things, but also these strange things as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the thing about Glaston, he was, uh, a man of phenomenal energy and stamina and mm. that's how i mean upon leaving office at the age of 84 you know he was the the oldest prime minister of course to leave office um and the oldest prime minister to uh start uh on his on, on his administration at the age of 82 so uh yeah so um so he had lots of energy for outside interests, shall we say, one of the strange things that he he did enjoy doing in his spare time was chopping down trees. Um, I mean, these are absolutely huge trees that he cut down on his uh, Howarden estate. Mm. And also, he go he take his axe and go and visit uh, other lordships <laughs> and, and and cut a few of their trees down as well, just for practice. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. Uh, the energy that he had. I just put that, uh, put the record straight that he actually uh, did plant quite a lot of trees as well, as well as cutting them down. So <laughs> there was a balance there. Yeah. But, um, yes. And he also, um, of course, uh, he had phenomenal energy in that uh, he walked vast distances, like 30, 40 miles. It's difficult to believe, mm. but he did do it. And it's all, it's all recorded in his diaries. He walked these distances. He liked to go on uh, holidays in Wales. He walk along the coast and in the mountains, mm. and um, and you know phenomenal walks. But also he liked to go walking in Germany. He had a few holidays in Germany. He'd walk in the Alps there in the, in the Bavarian Alps. Huge! And you can imagine walking thirty miles in the Bavarian Alps. That's quite an achievement, actually. Yeah. <laughs> actually, there's a little. Um, a uh, strange little anecdote which I found in the uh, Roy Jenkins book about Gladstone, in that um, he he said he was walking in Berchtesgaden along the river there, mm. and uh, and he was walking there with his Führer. Now that's hilarious because of course Berchtesgaden is Hitler's old future haunt. Indeed, and, but he meant a guy. A, a Führer is also a guide. But the fact that he should say his work, you know, in his diary, wrote, I enjoy walking in Berta's garden with a Führer, <laughs> is quite hilarious, really. Yeah, it's like uh, one anyway. of those mo- moments of historical foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, of course, famously, because uh, he, he's a deeply religious man, and he wore his religion on his sleeve, and and uh, that was all, you know, during his work in government, he he was religious, thinking about religious things as well. Uh, the moral religion was a moral guide for him. But, um, also, um, in the evenings, he was famous for, uh, going out and trying to rescue fallen ladies. 
in in the street, basically prostitutes. Right. And he wanted to convince them of you know of the error of their ways. And uh, surprisingly, his wife approved of this. She was deeply religious as well. And he'd bring them home, and they'd have meals together, and they'd talk to them, and you know, trying to persuade them of the errors of their way. But what his wife didn't know was that he uh, strayed sometimes um, and did naughty things that he shouldn't have done with them. Um, but his wife didn't know about that, although he did admit it to his son later on. Um, but, um, but it was very dangerous. He was doing this as, you know, as party leader, prime minister and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, a few people did know about it and warn of him that it wasn't appropriate. But um, he, he he just felt that that was um, something as a mission in life, if you want, really, to to do that. Um, uh, but really, I, it was only came out later in the in the twentieth century that this you know this was going on, and when his diaries were uh, published. So uh, yeah, so a man with phenomenal energy, but also, as you say, <laughs> an unusual private life, shall we say? I did see somewhere. Um, when I was doing a lot of Jack the Ripper research years ago, that he was considered as one of the most unlikely suspects because he was <laughs> prime minister. He was he was still he was wandering the streets, looking at looking after prostitutes, and there was a possibility that he might be murdering them. But the the author who wrote the book said this is incredibly unlikely. No, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the opposite. He wanted to save them, not murder them. Absolutely, that's absolutely. I suppose but, uh, you could think, oh, well, if he couldn't save them, he'd murder them. <laughs> but it's most unlikely, isn't it? Really? Yeah, he, he had a zero out of ten next to his name, if I remember correctly. Yeah, <laughs> rightly uh, so. Yeah. Um, so, lastly, uh, what was we've, we've covered quite a few odd, odd facts and things. Yeah. What was the most bizarre one that you found during your research, or the one that most tickled you? You thought, yeah, that's got to go in. Oh. Um, it's about Alec Douglas Hume, Prime Minister, uh, 1963 to four. Um, he, well, first of all, he, when he's younger day, he liked to go butterfly hunting, but that's not so strange as his later hobby as Prime Minister as well, which was flower arranging. I just couldn't believe it when I, <laughs> when I read that. Um, he, he liked to arrange uh, roses and tulips in a vase. Uh, at, generally at times of stress. And this was a hobby of his. Um, apparently, uh, during World War II, he'd, um, he'd, um, uh, got spinal T- TB and, uh, he'd been encased in plaster for a year, which is a, a, an amazing thing to think, you know, imagine being encased like that. Uh, so he couldn't really do very much. Uh, and so he, he developed this hobby. And he said, well, if, if no one else to do it, so I do it. <laughs> but it's amazing to think of a prime minister getting out the flowers and, and arranging them in a vase when things were getting a bit stressful. I think in the book I said that this could be the first case of mindfulness. <laughs> Self-care for prime ministers. Younger's drink the poor option. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Clive, thank you so much for for joining us today and telling us about your book. So, um, obviously, your book. Can you just remind us of the name, where it is, where where people can get it from? uh, Yeah, it's (laughs) it's British Prime Ministers and a hundred facts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And is that where can 
if anyone fancies getting a copy of that. Well, it's out on the 15th of November. Yeah. And of course, it's freely available on Amazon or, or through Amber, Amberley Publishing. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. That's fantastic. So thank you so much for okay. joining us, Clive. It's been a really, really interesting session. Um, Chris, thank you for co-hosting with me as well. And thank, thank you, you everyone for listening in and we'll see you around for the next one. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.